Hello, and welcome to Chris's podcast, season two. We're going to sit around and talk about things and stuff this year and some other subjects. I was at a lecture with Martin Luther King in the early 60s, and he said to us, you don't really need to go out and demonstrate. What you need to do is make every interaction what you're demonstrating about. You don't need to be in an organization, he said. You just everything you do should be done with love and compassion. In today's interview, I get the pleasure to chat with David Glaubinger a good friend I met in my years of working in construction. We go into many things as David and I always do when we get the chance to talk. The story starts back before Ellis Island was built and runs right up to David's days working as an electrician. Every time I catch up with David, I learn something new, and this time was no different. How do you say your last name? Glaubinger. Glaubinger. Yes, you know, it's a very nice Austrian name. Mine is Bach, much easier. Mine's Austrian, too. But yeah, Glau- was it Glaubinger? Yes. And, uh, you know, Glaubinger in German means believer. Wow, I like that. It's a yeah. good last name. My uh, grandfather uh, emigrated from Vienna. Oh, I would say about 1875 or so, before Ellis Island was built. Immigrated here? Yeah, uh, to uh, New York. To New York. Yeah, he was about 16 years old. He had been conscripted into Emperor Franz Joseph's army in a war against France. And uh, being Jewish, he was treated very poorly. And when he came home for the winter holiday, his parents gave him money and passage to New York. And somehow he managed to get to New York, I think via France. And he landed in New York, didn't speak a word of English, my uncle told me. And um, he started following these guys in long black coats and black hats that looked familiar to him. And they... Uh, they went to a, They were walking to a synagogue, so he went there and introduced himself um, to the common language at the time was Yiddish, so they were able to understand him. He spoke Yiddish and also German, and they adopted him, put him through high school and college, and uh, married a lady, and, my, and there came my father from that marriage. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I remember you told me that when we were working on hooking up the sauna there. Yes. So that's my lineage. He died before I was born. Died in 1939. I was born in 1941. So I'm named after him. Huh. David. Yes. King David. (laughs) So then you were born... When and then did what? June 25th, 1941, in the Bronx. 
Bronx, New York. And then from there, you, you know, I, I kind of want to get into like, um, you know, just kind of like just basic like like life stuff in general. But you know, talk about like I, you know, my questions around electricity. I'm going to ask later, but um, just you know, um, like college, you know, like what not, like what like what came from there. What'd you do? Yeah. Like what you want to what you want to be as a kid, David? Well, um, when I was very young. Uh, I wanted to be a coal miner. <laughs> uh, not for any, I don't know why, but probably because my parents were very involved in the trade union movement and in the civil liberties movement, which they didn't call it at the time in the 40s. So um, they they um, were associated with a, um, a kind of semi-socialist movement in America it was called a workers' movement, and they mm-hmm. received, and they received uh, you know newspapers and stuff in the mail, and I guess I must have been about five or six when I was I started reading when I was around five or six, and I wrote a letter to the newspaper saying I wanted to grow up and be a coal miner because I had seen movies of coal miners going in and out of the coal mines in, in little trains. I want, and that was it. I wanted to be on one of those little trains. There you go. And my father was not, did not drive at the time. And when we visited the relatives, see, we moved from the Bronx to New, southern New Jersey when I was less than a year. My father was a conscientious objector. He refused to join the army on the grounds, the moral grounds, he could not kill. So the um, Civil Service said you could go to jail or join the Coast Guard. We joined the Coast Guard, and they placed him in a shipyard. And uh, actually, he was an electrician's mate, first class in the Coast Guard, and he was working on the Liberty ships that they were building at the time. This shipyard was five miles long, and they were launching a ship every month. Wow. So, yeah. So when we commute, when we went to visit the relatives in New York, we always took the train, Pennsylvania Railroad. So I became fascinated with trains at a very early age, and I saw a movie of the coal miner going in and out of the coal mine in the train. I wanted to be on that train. But mm-hmm. years later, I became more interested in science, and uh, I actually grew up as a science kid. I knew about chemistry at a very early age. I knew about all the sciences, and I read all the science books. And I actually subscribed to Scientific American for about 10 or 15 years. Hmm. That my initial foray into the world of, of science and technology. That's fascinating. I like that. So then did you go to college? I mean, you graduated high school, I assume, at some point. Yes, we actually. I actually went to three different high schools. Okay. In Southern Jersey, there was it was actually a six-year high school. You graduated. You went from sixth grade directly into high school in the seventh grade, but that was during the period of the McCarthy era, Joseph McCarthy and the, oh, yeah. and the um, um, you know the what do they call it the witch hunt. Yeah, not not too different to what we're. Having to relive at the moment. 
That was that. But we don't need to get into that. Yeah, uh, McCarthy. So, so go on. Yeah, well, we we had to move because we were one of two, three Jewish families in an Irish Catholic town. So we had to move to Central Jersey to another high school. And then when I was a junior, they moved to New York City. They bought a house in Queens so that us kids could go to the city colleges. So I went hmm. to Hunter College in the Bronx as a chemical engineering major. Wow. So that further enhanced my interest in science because we had not only taken chemistry, it was mathematics. I had a minor in mathematics and uh, a second minor in physics. That's awesome. So then you use those degrees? And did no, stuff? I, I never finished the program. I never achieved oh. the degree. Okay. In the beginning of my senior year, I had interviews with prospective employers and realized that the chemical engineers make napalm and asphalt and food chemicals and stuff that was abhorrent to me. I realized, oh, my romantic interest in chemical engineering was crashed. I didn't want to be doing that. So I changed my yeah. interest. I changed my interest to life sciences and I enrolled in pre med biology classes. Okay. And uh most the rest of my academic career was in uh, well various forms of biology and molecular biology and then I ended up working as a lab um laboratory assistant on a, a research project in a medical school. Hmm. So I spent three years doing research. What type uh, of research? We, uh, I was um, employed to uh, assist two PhDs in a grant that was to study the effects of hypothermia on learning and memory. And it was the mouse that we were using in the experiments. So what did, you, did you discover anything? I mean, yeah, it, it yeah, seems pretty yeah. obvious to me that it's going to affect you, but... Uh, we did... We um, What we did was elucidate certain neurological functions that happens in the learning process and how hypothermia can interrupt the learning process. And uh, we uh, postulated... The learning process was initially a neural response, visual, tactile, et cetera, and then it took a certain amount of time for the neural response, which was electrical in the brain, to become a memory trace, which is chemical. It's RNA, ribonucleic acid is what our memories are all about. So we studied that and how hypothermia can interrupt that period, what's called consolidation. We demonstrated that there is a two-part function in learning and memory. One is the yeah. acquisition. One is the acquisition of the event, the awareness of the event, and then the other part of it is remembering the event or remembering the learning, whatever it is. So that's yeah. what we, we published a lot of papers. I have a co-authored on several papers in the American Journal of Physiology and various other. Na, uh, national uh, 
professional scientific journals. Huh. And I even authored, I was even lead author on a study of how the experimenter can affect the experiment. Oh, God. And as a matter of fact, I lost the paper. I got a, I got to contact one of the PhDs I worked for and get that paper back. So actually, I'm a published scientist in a, in a minor way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. So one thing led to another. After that, I had a, a teaching position at Queens College. In, oh, really? In the Department of Psychology. Um with uh, counseling the, the psych majors in uh, laboratory techniques in experimental psychology. So I did that for a couple of years. That is so fascinating. Yes, it was. I enjoyed it. But because I did not have a degree, I could not advance in the academic world unless I completed my bachelor's, so, hmm. which I didn't really have an interest in. So what I did after that, I took my hobby of, of photography. I've been I had a hobby of photography since I was about 15 or 16. <clears throat> I took my hobby of photography and turned it into a profession, and hmm. and uh, started getting photographic work. And I'm self-taught in the dark room. We were doing a lot of dark room work for the researchers at the medical school, and so a friend and I opened up a film processing outfit where we developed other people's films and printed their pictures for them. And I did that until 1972. Wow. I had a studio. I ended up with a studio in in New York City, commercial studio. I worked with advertising agencies and various other companies, uh, photographing products, photographing models. I did a little work for Macy's. And uh, and then after a number of years, I, after several vacations in California, I came to California the first time in 61 with some friends, and I just fell in love with the place, fell in love with San Francisco. <clears throat> I said, any, any city that has trolley cars and cable cars, I want to live there. <laughs> That's so great. So the passion for trains continued. I always had a passion for trains and railroads. Yeah, you still do, I know. I still do, yes. And so I decided I didn't want to live in New York City anymore. I wanted to live in California. And I wanted to marry a California girl and grow marijuana and be closer to the Grateful Dead. (laughs) Nice. So it was a kind of a romantic thing. Uh, but I really had to shuck myself from New York City, which is not very healthy. Speaking of, speaking of music, so you saw The Grateful Dead, I assume. You, you see Bob Marley perform ever? No, I never saw uh, really? Bob Marley perform. Oh, I would have been all over that. Yeah, <clears throat> I think he mostly was in the West Coast. There were two, yeah. two venues of the new rock and roll. So when did you move to the east, the west to, to California? In 1972, I came here. Yeah, he was still performing around here. Oh he yeah, di- still- he died in '81, so. Oh yeah, they were still performing, but by that time, the band itself 
had become less interesting to me. And Jerry, as a, a musician, was just a little too spaced out, and the band itself wasn't that fascinating. Repetitive, and also focused on a younger generation than me. Yeah. So, so, so then, what did you, what did you do? At, like, what was the main thing that brought you to, to California, other than you know wanting to have a lot of freedom and grow marijuana and follow the Grateful Dead? There has been something other to really well, make you decide. I wanted. It was. See, I had gotten married in '63, but Joni and I realized we were just way too young. I was 20; she was 17. So I had a period in New York where I was a bachelor for about seven okay. years. And I wanted to end the bachelor period. I wanted to get married. Mm-hmm. And um, the girls that I was that I knew weren't all that interested in marriage. Mm. And I had this romantic thing about the California girls. So, and I did. <laughs> I was a California girl, born in L.A., and... Um, she was one of the people at the center of the cyclone of the Grateful Dead and and LSD. So you moved out to California to find a California not girl, not like you met a California girl and then you moved there. No, I didn't have any girl. That's right. I came out here. I shut. I sold my equipment. Stopped. Ended the studio. I was gonna open a studio out here, but. There wasn't there weren't any advertising agencies of, of note in Northern California. It was all down in LA. So I decided to end the photography career and find something new. Okay. But, but I didn't know what it was going to be yet. And, and what and what did that end up being? Well, I took a job. I needed to have a job right away so I wouldn't spend all my savings. So mm-hmm. I took a job as a dishwasher in a French restaurant in Mill Valley. Okay. And um, also, just uh, back up a second, when I came to California, the first thing I did was engage in a program of primal therapy. I was just too wound up from New York. I was my heart was closed. I was a bit of a I was a bit of a hustler. Mm. Uh, um, you know, I was just one girlfriend after another, love them and leave them, and I needed to shut that matrix in my head, and also anger and things like that. So I enrolled in a, a, um, a course of primal, primal therapy done in the desert, Southern California, mm-hmm. Valley, and I spent 13 weeks there. Wow. I did 300 hours of it, and um, it was the thing that I needed to do. And while I was there, I met some people who moved to San Francisco, who went through the place, it was a part of an organization, went through the place and ended up in San Francisco, and they invited me to come and live with them. And that was the first time ever in my life anybody invited me to be a roommate. Hmm. And so I lived in San Francisco for about a year. You must have felt pretty good, huh? Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And that's when I met Kathleen, mm. her wife, although she had another boyfriend. And mm-hmm. I didn't have any I, – I, she came to the house where we lived in San Francisco on 17th Street. And um, I heard that she had two boyfriends. No. <laughs> and 
uh, well, she, she, yeah, she did. And <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know she was in the throes of re- removing herself from those relationships. But anyway, I met her there. And then while I was living there with these people, I said to them one morning at breakfast, let's buy a house in Marin County. And they all went, what? And I said, yeah, Marin County is really cool because I've been here since 1961, off and on. I was in Sausalito when it was still an art community. And I went up and down the coast with my friends and went to Mendocino Village, of, which was also then just an art community. And I'd always been associated with artists. And a lot of the work that I did as a photographer was photographing art, paintings, and sculpture. And I actually had a job as a staff photographer in a museum. Mm. So, and in the interim, this is how I got my construction background. When you move in, I moved into a loft when I moved out of my parents' house. It was an empty space, 25 by 100 feet. No columns, no walls. And uh, my roommate and I had to go buy some books about electricity, bought some books about plumbing, and um, we bought some books about carpentry, and we thought we made a little home inside the, inside the loft. We had built a dark room and all kinds of stuff. So I already had that kind of background. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Um, when I moved to New York, to California, I had already had a lot of different skills besides the science skills. Yeah. So I, my friends, let's move to Marin County, and we did. We found a house, fifteen-room house in San Anselmo, at the top of Hillside Avenue. Fifteen room. Fifteen room, a huge house. Five of us went in on it together, as tenants in common. And I lived there for about five years. And um, uh, at one point, we one of our partners decided to, to leave, and we had to buy him out. So we had an empty room, and they said, oh, let's not look for another owner. Let's look for a renter. And one of the roommates, one of my partners in the house, knew this girl who lived down in Santa Cruz County who wanted to move up to the Bay Area again. And that was mm-hmm. Kathleen. And they sent me down to get her. Oh, my God. And that was Kathleen. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it was in Ben Lomond, you know, 90-some-odd miles. Somebody loaned me a truck to get all her belongings and bring her up to San Anselmo. And by the time I got to San Anselmo, I said, this is the girl. Mm-hmm. This is the woman I, I want to marry. And so we... Um, that must have been a fun drive. It was. It was. It was very interesting. She told me all about her background and her experiences with the Grateful Dead. She'd been inside of the Grateful Dead Circle on the West Coast. I was on the inside of the Grateful Dead Circle on the East Coast. So we knew the same people. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was also on the inside of the LSD movement. <laughs> her girlfriend was the... Her roommate was the girlfriend of Owsley Stanley III, the Acid King. He was the oh guy who all that LSD. And she was part of the manufacturing process. She helped make the pills and 
And uh, sometimes they would go to Grateful Dead concerts and give out pills to anybody who wanted them. They get the whole audience stoned on acid. The band, <laughs> the band was usually stoned on acid. Oh was, my God! As was Bill Graham, who I met in New York before I came to California. Mm. And, <laughs> and I would have been I would have been on mushrooms, but you know. Right. Well, that had, sounds fun. Sure, had, you had those too. I haven't gotten to mushrooms yet. Okay. And um, we, you know, when I was a devotee in LSD, I must have taken a 200 trips by the time I stopped taking it. In New York, my one of my friends and I, we did it every weekend for about a year. Hmm. Good Lord. Uh, All right, let's get back on track here. We're, so we're, anyway, we're, we're, that's, we're, that's my background in California, and that's how I got to be in Marin County. That's that's. I mean, that's, so then when did you become an electrician? Um, when was that? Well, because we you, you have a license, at least you better, because you did a bunch of work here for me. Right. Well, when we moved into this 15-room house, all these electrical repairs had to be done. <laughs> and I already knew a little bit about it. So I started as the, the roommate partner who did electrical work. In that 15-room house. In this 15-room house. And um, I got involved in the restaurant business, but I was still taking side jobs, fix, helping people fix fix things. Mm-hmm. And um, as time went on, I was all of the other things that happened in the interim. I actually became a general contractor first in 70, mm. 1978 with another friend of mine that Kathleen introduced me to. And we had a, comp- a construction company called Gorilla Construction Company. And we did foundations and concrete work and stuff like that, retaining walls, sidewalks, and things. Uh, but I also did a lot of electrical work along the way. And years later, I was building a house in, in Oakland. And uh, the carpenters who were working for me told me how they were petrified of electricity. Uh-huh. At that time, I was not spending very much time at home and uh, decided to change my licensing from general contractor to electrical contractor. And that was in uh, 1999. Because you weren't afraid of electricity. You, under, you understood it. Well, I was playing with electricity since I was 10 years old with my electric trains. Yep. You know, I put it in my red books and did little science experiments, and I even won first place in the science fair in high school. So it was a natural thing. I said, everybody's afraid of it. I'm not. I'm going to do it. So I changed my licensing in 99 from the B license to the C10. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I've been doing electrical work since the early 60s. So it was a natural for me, and I said, okay, yeah. uh this is the and I said to and I realized how much electricians could make. And I said, "Oh, that is a whole lot interesting than being a waiter in a restaurant." <laughs> oh yeah, different job each day, different different drive to work. Yeah, and there was every and every week there was a different kind of work. Yeah, you could work mm-hmm. on this house here, work on that house there. <clears throat> So that's how it all happened, and I realized I got to settle into something, and that's what I did. I settled into electrical, and uh, the rest is history. And, you know, uh, 
I've done whole homes, but mostly what I do now is smaller jobs, and I do what I call um, uh, little Sherlock Holmes-type jobs. Where yeah, you- I feel like every time I call you, you're in the middle of some sort of, the panel is about to short out the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and also now I'm getting very much more involved in generators as well. Yeah. Everybody, a lot of people want to have generators because of the, uh, the PG&E blackout thing. So that's pretty much how I got into it. And the reason it's so interesting to me is it's science. I'm a science kid. I've been a science kid all my life. So this was a finally a perfect fit. And, yeah. it does, and also I liked it because it doesn't require a whole lot of tools. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it does, does not. No, so I sold off all my carpentry tools and one of my and my chop saw got stolen and that was it. Okay. So Yeah, I'm I'm looking at all this heavy equipment in my garage right now. You know, you know I do floors and it's just yeah, it's a lot of equipment. Yes, you know, I ele- ele- electrician guy shows up with a pouch flinging a bunch of little pieces everywhere. Actually you're very clean. I can say that as a flooring guy, you know, there might be like people listening to this that oh, electrician guy's messy, you know, because it's a thing that flooring guys, I mean, flooring guys think everyone's messy, but electricians get a lot of bad rap. But you're very clean as an electrician. You keep track of all your little, because we did a bunch of stuff around here and we were keeping all the little scraps and you're, you're saving them and be able to, you know, recycle them. And, you know, you were clean. I was like, man, this, this is the guy you want, you know, working at least leading lead, lead the leading the pack, you know. Yes, and uh, oh, around 15 years ago, one of my first electrical jobs as an electrician was over in Berkeley, and the general contractor I was working for noticed I was sweeping up my little scraps and the little pieces of sheetrock and stuff, and mm-hmm. making sure when I left everything was clean. Yeah. And now you. Me, no matter what I bid, he's going to hire me. Exactly. And so I've always been that way. I want to, I want to move on to um, like electricity. The questions I have about electricity are kind of what is it? Like how do you explain what it actually is? Is there okay. a way, is there a way to, in like layman's terms? Because I mean, I've always been fascinated by it as I think most people are and don't understand it on a certain level, but I understand. You know, I get it. I just. um... Well, the reality is we don't know exactly what it is. Okay. We know how to to handle it and we know how to study it. So what I tell my clients and other people that electricity is really um, a force and it's not it's not like water flowing in in wires, but it's a charge. An electrochemical charge. It's electrons bumping into each other, sending a charge from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, along along the metal wire. And um, I I tell them it's a charge. It's kind of like what you experience with static electricity, yeah, and magnetism. But it's all it's a special kind of charge that you can initiate from one end of the wire to the other end of the wire. 
and 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 you can turn that up and turn that down. Correct. Like we have a very what what is the voltage that runs us? That's DC. Right. The nominal voltage for residences in this country is alternating current. No, I mean us as human beings. I didn't say correctly. uh, It's 120, uh, 120 uh, at a 240 volt system. Yeah. And that's the way it is all across the country. And it's governed by a series of rules called the National Electrical Code, which stipulates to the finest detail how those wires are to be installed and utilized. And, and that's that's AC. That's alternating current. Alternating current, yes. The electricity in America first started out as direct current. Mm-hmm. And that was in, invented uh, in part by some Italians in Italy. And hmm. Uh, various people learn the technology and um, in America started developing the technology uh, for ver- first for motors and then for lighting and then for general um, commercial use and two of how is that how is that first charge of electricity generated to the point where they were like oh my god that's you know, we can we can actually harness that and make it do something. Well, the Italians had figured out something that we call now a generator type of motor. Mm-hmm. That when it turns, and it, it, I won't get into the details of the physics of it, but when it turns, it creates the charge. And they uh, put the charge in a wire. Um, this was invent, developed by a man, an Italian named Volta, V-O-L-T-A, hence the term Volt is used to commemorate Professor Volta. And he invented a battery, which they call a pile, and then they realized that they could generate more power with this rotating thing that was invented by, I can't remember who, I think it was some Germans. So all of that technology came to America, and there were, and there were at the time actual electrical engineers, and one of them was named Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. Another one was named George Westinghouse, and another one was named Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. Those three people developed commercial electricity in one way or another um, in America. Thomas Edison was really not a scientist; he was really a, a, a tinkerer a very clever tinkerer, and he developed a direct current system, DC, like batteries, positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And Nikola Tesla was experimenting with a, a phenomenon that they discovered when you make a circuit or you break a circuit, there's a certain surge that happens. Mm-hmm. And, and Tesla realized if you make and break this circuit, Enough times, you can get a higher charge than you can get with direct current. You're building it. You're causing the charge to create a charge of going. Right. And so if you do this frequently, like 60 times a second, 
you can send a charge further down the wire than you can do it with direct current. So he and George Westinghouse developed that and developed motors on that basis. And, and by the way, just parenthetically, the the uh, the evolution of that study is what is in the Tesla car. That's why he named it Tesla. It's yeah. a, called an induction motor. And this was invented over 100 years ago, but it required too many controls. So it was only for use for industrial use. But then with the advent of power tech, power transistors and, and various other things and solid state power regulation, they developed these little motors. And now that's they call a brushless motor. It's a, everywhere you go. The little motor inside your your laptop that's ventilating mm-hmm. is a little is a Tesla motor. It's an induction motor. The motors inside those um, uh, little uh, aircraft that people have that what do they call those things now? The drones. Yeah, those drones. Uh... Those little things to turn the propellers. Tesla motors. So that's the history of electricity. And that was actually one of my other questions. So, like, so when 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 you put a charge into an electrical device that was that does have brushes, right? Mm-hmm. You got you to explain what brushes are quickly too. But like, what is it that like what's creating? The fact that you can get like a drill bit to, to to turn and drive in a drill, like what is that? You know what I mean? Well, well the electrical charge in the wires causes causes the um, <clears throat> armature, which is the rotating part of the of motor, to turn, and the and the armature has one, um, wire windings in it. And the outside of the motor has other wire windings in it. That's called the field. And the outside wires create uh, an electrical charge that causes the armature wire to rotate. Okay. And the brushes, what the brushes do is they regulate um, the charge that comes from the field wiring to the rotating part, the armature. And the brushes are, are these little carbon contacts that rub up against a series of tiny little uh, copper plates. Mm-hmm. So that at each time the, the electrical charge from the field goes to the plate, the motor moves a little. Mm-hmm. And then it comes around to the next little teeny piece of metal on mm-hmm. contact with the, with the carbon brush. And... Causes the thing to keep rotating. It's a, a called electromagnetic. Hmm. So it's basically it's it's like relay transferring it from one electrical contact point to another where it can continue to charge. Right. So the field. So wire, the brush the brush allows electricity to flow through it, but also have the contact move. Right. And so the, and okay. yes. Uh, the field wiring is like it surrounds the armature, creates an yeah. atmosphere. You might say it's a kind of an atmosphere. We call it an electromagnetic field. 
and that's what causes the motor to go around. Okay. Well, what Tesla discovered was that if you use a certain kind of electromagnetic array in the motor, controlling the, the field and the, round, the uh, armature in a certain way, you can use the, elect- the magnetism or the electromagnetism in the field to cause the, the armature to turn without the brushes. Oh, I see. And so you're basically just creating one field and it just goes. Right, and it's a, what it's called is an induction. Induction is when you have a charge that's transferred from one place to another without wire. Magnets are a, a very, very basic form of induction. Yeah, all these, all these, all these waves that exist are right. You know. So that's the, that's what the big deal is about the Tesla and the new motors, and so, uh, they're much more efficient, and they can turn at a higher rate of speed. They can go up to twelve thousand RPM, and there's no so crazy because there's less friction, right? Is that why? There's no friction at all between the field and the armature. It's all controlled by transistors now. The, the only friction is the point where that spinning thing has to be anchored. That's pretty much it. Right, that's it. That. Yeah, it has a shaft, and the only place of contact is the bearings. And the field is, does not come in contact with uh, the armature, but... In and the that's why, like, like, like we, if you have a, if you have a brush a brush drill gun now, it'll slowly die down because it can send that relay from one thing to the next gradually because it still has some juice. Right. But with, with, with a brush motor, as soon as the battery gets below a threshold that it can't continue that signal, it's it. It shuts off. It doesn't right. go anymore. Yes, and also the brushes wear out. Exactly. you got to replace them. Replace them, right. Whereas the induction motor hasn't any brushes, because that friction is eating away a little bit of that carbon yeah, so, every time. So there's no there's no friction at all between the field and the armature. It's all yeah. the field, the transistors control the, the magnetic field of the, uh, the wiring in the field wiring, and that causes, I think you, I think causes, you actually managed to explain that. Yeah, and it causes the armature to turn. Yeah. Exactly. And instead of having little teeny spots like the And bottom. a lot of it is a lot of it is faith that it's gonna work because until you put that charge in there, which we can't actually explain what it is, it doesn't work. It's right. A bunch of stuff sitting there. Right. So so human beings, our body has electricity in it, right? Yes. And we are direct current, right? Uh we're not certain. We're not certain. If, if it's direct current or not, and I um, we're a type of electricity then. So explain that. It's it's uh, well, it's a kind of if you neural, can. it's a neural what they call neural electricity related to the neurology of our bodies, and I think what it is 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 impulse, and not like uh, regular electricity, but I think it's a series of impulses that are transmitted along neurological fibers in our body, from one cell to another, to another, to another, to another, all the way to the brain and back, at the speed of light. 
So, so you think we're calling it electricity because we can't explain it? You know, that's like God and things like that. Yeah, the term electricity actually um, is derived from the Greeks, who first um, uh, studied static electricity, and they named it after the Greek Greek god of of what was it? One of the Greek gods was named Electron. E L E K T R O N. So that's hmm. what they, that's where the term comes from. It's a from Greek mythology and, and their study of static electricity 500 years before the birth of Christ. They knew about it, but they didn't have wires. They didn't know how to utilize it. Say it was more of a novelty. So lightning is in its essence the same exact electricity that powers you know, electrical machines. Yes, only it's, it's, it's transient. It, it, it comes and goes very quickly. But it is an electrical charge, but it's what we call static electricity. It's like static electricity on a just massive scale. Yes, a massive scale. That's exactly it. And it's generated by friction within the clouds, air friction. And so amazing to me. And uh, I know. So it's, it's like rubbing... Um, Rubbing a plastic on wool. Remember how we used to do rub things like you rub a balloon on yeah, wool? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's the same thing, only on a, um, a mega, mega level. Yeah, when you like, you look at clouds and you think, oh, you should just pass through it, no friction. But no, that's not it. No, the air in the clouds is turbulent. You look at the clouds, it looks like a, you know, looks like a painting. But if you're up there in an aircraft, which I have been. And when you're flying, also in commercial aircraft, you can see that it's swirling and whirling and just always in motion. Yeah. And the air, the air above the planet is continuously in motion. It's moving from west to east as the earth turns from east to west. And all that motion creates friction, and the friction will generate charge. And the earth... um, would uh, be uh, the recipient of it, like the like the balloon and the wool sweater. It's got to get the ground. Yeah, it goes to the ground, and it's millions of volts, but it's only yeah, for, it's only for a bazillionth of a second. Yeah, such a fascinating thing that electricity always has to get to ground to me. What is that? Like, what is it? It's trying to get back to the center of the earth. No. Um, it's the, the Earth itself has a, I guess, an electromagnetic field. Charge. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a recipient of the charge from the clouds. Okay. It can pass into it. It can, yeah, it goes to it. But once it hits the planet, it doesn't go anywhere else. It dissipates very quickly. It could, well, that's, so it doesn't, it doesn't doesn't go anywhere? It just doesn't... Just... It just dissipates, yeah. It's like when so... you remove the balloon from the sweater, the charge goes away. Hmm. But the term ground in electricity is very different from dirt. Ground means... Um, it's, 
see how can I define what it means. It's um, it's one the, the planet itself is one half of our electrical system on this planet, and um, the way electricity is transmitted from the generation plant is one part of it is generated through the wires, but there has to be a second conductor or something because electricity always has to have a path of return. And what what they discovered is, and this again is Westinghouse and Tesla, if you drive a rod into the earth, one half of the electricity can be transmitted through the earth to some place where there's another rod that goes up to the transformer on the pole and it picks up what we call the hot. And that's how electricity is generated on this planet. So part of it is in the earth and part of it is in the wires. And um, they have also realized that if something goes wrong with electrical short circuit or something else, something bad happens, the charge is directed to earth and it dissipates into the earth. And that's why we have the ground. Yeah, that is so poetic sounding to me, David. Like, I swear, it just sounds like some sort of spiritual lesson. Well, you're, talking, was... you're talking about electricity, but like the fact that we have, elect, you know, what we're going to try to define as electricity running through our body, you know, it's just amazing to me. And then I don't know. It's fascinating. I have this. I have this interest of elect, in electricity. It's a lot to do with my my past, but it's just it's a fascinating thing. It I want to. It is so fascinating. I huh? call it miraculous. I call it miraculous. Yeah. And the fact that we figured out how to utilize it, like we have figured out how to utilize chemicals, and how we figured out how to manipulate molecules. I think it takes a lot of faith, you know, and just believing it like like you said you we're not sure why it works we just know that you can turn it up and turn it down and you can control it and you can make a bigger machine out of it you can make a smaller machine out of it right and you can and you can move massive amounts of it and stick wires you can come in contact with it and it not kill you you can have them come in contact with it and it kill you because yes. of certain certain circumstances that are in play Correct. It's crazy. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna ask you. Go ahead. Yeah. If you touch the white wire that comes into your house, mm-hmm. that's the wire that's been that's the the part of the system that's been transmitted through the earth. So if you touch the white wire, you're not completing a circuit, and you won't get a shock. It's just passing along the the wire as you're touching yeah. it. It, it yeah. wants to stay in the wire more than once you. Right, it's like the bird it has no way to get from 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 through you to somewhere else. So right, it's not going to go there. It's like a bird sitting on a wire. Yeah, not, there you go. If you touch the hot wire, and you're then you're completing a circuit, and that's when you get shocked. Yeah, the fact that it can be harnessed, you know, yes. it's crazy. That is the, the lightning I, makes like like lightning makes more sense to me than how um, a motor works in a lot of ways. 
like well, the fact that you can figure that out and that it, you can do it, you know. Well, think of it on the micro scale. The motor with the brushes is turned by teeny little sparks of arcing yeah. from the field collider. Electricity, yeah. exactly. Just throwing it from one to the next. Right. Yeah, it, it makes it look like, yeah, you, you explained it really well, actually, which is great. Right, but now the new motors don't have brushes in them anymore. They use electronic technology to regulate the magnetic field in the field wiring that transfers the the um, the charge to the to the turning part. Yeah, and that uh, that's one of the most advanced. Uh, development. And that couldn't that couldn't exist until you had a device that could regulate that that could be separate from the, the flow of current and attached to it to where it can say okay this is what it needs this is what it doesn't need and it's it's getting the electricity and then throwing it in some right. way I don't know what it's doing from there but it makes sense to me that it needs to be regulated because that's yeah. what the brushes were doing the brushes were doing the regulating right so now you the transistors are regulating the circuitry. Exactly. And when Tesla invented this in the 1880s, 1890s, they had to use a huge array of relays to control. It was all external. So that the application of that was only for industrial motors. There wasn't, they had, had no way of miniaturizing it. So that's why brush, brush motors lasted for so long until the tra transistors were invented and uh, something called a power transistor was developed. And now that takes the place of all those relays that were all that we require to regulate the field coils. And, yeah. and that's all built in now with teeny little chips. That's so crazy to me. All right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to flip up the, the interview here and jump into a question that, um, a lot of questions that I normally ask people. I'm asking you, like, actually two from what I normally ask people. But, um, like, looking back on your life, you know, I mean, 2020, like, our divisions of this country, you're, I mean, you, how old are you, David? 79. 79. So. I'll be 80 this year. Yeah. And um, just, like, what what do you find the most gratifying about, you know, your life and, and like the things you've done at this point, personal or you know, like whatever you want to say, level. Well, I think the most gratifying thing personally is finding a sense of peace of mind in my own, my own existence. Um, being able to interact with people and events and, um, in a more objective way, and not a, and not reactive, but um, observant instead. Mm -hmm. That's why I did the primal therapy, so I could get from reactive to observant, you might say. So I could I could be more loving and be more open with, without any fears or conditioning. So that's the most important thing I think that the 
in my own personal development over the years, and it took a lot of different things for it to happen, <clears throat> and it has a lot to do with self-esteem, <clears throat> and also realizing finally that I really am smart. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's a really an Achilles heel in a lot of people's like um like I've 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 come to the same realization lately like I'm I'm telling myself I'm not smart which is so just why would I do that right I that's what I said to myself years ago why am I doing that yeah when when was that for you how old were you if you can remember well, about 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 ish well, it was when I did the primal therapy. That was around, I was in 19, it was the summer of 1972. Mm-hmm. And I became aware of this organization. I won't go into the details of what it was, but they were, the organization's <clears throat> primary motive was to help people understand themselves and to achieve an understanding of life through a, a, a kind of enlightenment. And they had a technique they called enlightenment intensive. They still do it. The people contemplate, and I won't go into the details, but to try and get to the bottom of their thoughts, because you can have a thought without um, placing that uh, or judgment on it. You can take place of non-judgment, where you just experience life as it is mm-hmm. without any judgment. That was my objective, and I was able to do that. And then with the primal therapy. I was able to take that experience and expunge it from my from my uh, subconscious, basically. So I wouldn't be reacting with anger. I wouldn't have hostility. I still have to deal with it. It doesn't don't go away entirely. But to have a more free feeling about interacting with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And that happened during the summer of 72 when I was laying on the floor, screaming my head off, mm. uh, purging my purging my psyche, I guess you could say, to where I finally got to where I was forgiving my parents I was and forgiving people and understanding the concept of compassion. And that all happened around between... 1970 and 72. Mm. So when I got to California, I was not the same person. My friends knew me as New York. And one of my friends, one of my closest friends at the time, I'm on the phone with him and he says, Glaubinger, what happened? And I said, what's it, what's it, what do you mean? He says, you're so mellow. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you strike me as a very centered person. Like, our conversations are always really in the moment, you know? Yes. So that was the that was the pivotal experience. And yeah. it has made my life in California so enjoyable. Because now I can deal, when I get pissed off, I can analyze it. I also studied something called critical thinking, mm-hmm. where you challenge your own thoughts. That's one of the things you have to do. You have to challenge your thoughts to make sure that you are not imagining something and making it up as you go along like our president does. 
Mm. Our president is psychotic. He's a classic textbook psychotic on the loose. He doesn't question the val- the validity of any of his thoughts. No, I, I yeah. See, that's uh, that's one of the cr- critical things. I think we're like we're at this point in 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 our evolution as a species where um it's just about to go boom like you know it's just going it's a hand on the table you know what i mean it's yes. coming it's coming down and like you have like you said like in 72 you have these moments in life where your life is different from a to b and it's just yeah, this it's a, this it's, moment we're in is going to do it to, to society, no matter what, it's 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 it, it's a it's it's a nail that's been so driven home. Like everyone needed to take a moment and sit back. People that didn't even want to do it needed needed it, and they and they got it, and they got forced to do it. It was like a collective timeout, you know, that we got, you know, on a political and a global level with our pandemic, you know. So it's just it's a bit of a well, mess. So we can go. We can go off the rails and talk for another like three or five hours on that subject. Yeah, but it's a moment for critical thinking, and that's what the challenge yep. is right now. No, it's it, we're 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 at an, an inflection point. You know, we're at that point where we have to um, we have to we have to call a spade a spade. Um, yes. You know, I don't know. All right, so I'm going to go to the last question here. Kind of built up to it because in a good way because it's, it's a, you know the deeper of all the questions it's the you know what do you, what would you consider your purpose on this earth to be you know like consider you know like obituary type thought you know like well what, I, what kind of ripple do you want to have left on 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 the earth as you know david i my current I guess my philosophical, and actually through my work, is to improve life on the planet. To make all of my actions beneficial to others. All of my external actions beneficial to others, which is why I joined the American Red Cross. I was able to use my actions to benefit others. And that's what I, how I feel. And that is a result of a, a vow that I took. I'm not a religious person, but I had an encounter with someone who was related to the Dalai Lama, who was the Dalai Lama's first assistant. And I had an opportunity to be with this person in a ceremony where we... Um, what can I say, where we decided and and to live our life in a way that would benefit the enlightenment of others or the development of others. Mm. So it was a very moving ceremony and um, yeah, it's really it was sort of ritualistic as well. As it was The name of the person was the Karmapa and um, he came and we did all these prayers with him and we dedicated our lives to being of benefit to others and we and if you know, they have a concept of reincarnation and the idea is we will 
reincarnate as people until everyone is enlightened. So that's our mission in sort of a spiritual way. So hmm. that also further reinforced my experiences in the desert to where we live on this earth to feed ourselves and keep ourselves healthy, but we also need to be on this earth to be with others and help them do the same. So that was my motivation in joining the American Red Cross 38 years ago. So that's what I I feel right now about my work in electrical is that I make people's lives improved by my work. And Mm -hmm. I like that. So that my interaction with people is positive and helps them in some way. So that's where I'm at right now. It's sort of like I'm a servant in a way. That's beautifully said. And I, I can tell you you're doing that from my experience. Well, I wanted to make your sauna hot for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it works. We've been using it a lot lately. That's Good. So oh, nice. you, got, you got it fixed? Yeah, yeah. It was actually just I wasn't turning it on correctly. You, you, you did it right. Oh, wonderful. Just, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't doing my part correctly. And then once I figured that out, well, yeah, we've been we've been in that sauna a lot lately. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. One of the things that's been a pivotal experience, just to wrap it up for me, has been my association with the American Red Cross, which I am still a volunteer. Hmm. And that is one of the, that's why, the reason I joined is the Red Cross volunteer is not judgmental. We don't ask why they're in this position that you need help. We just respond. It could have been you set the house on fire because you were a jerk or something happened that happened that wasn't your fault. doesn't matter. We respond to human needs, and um, when humans are not able to deal with it on their own, that's the mission. Hmm. So that's uh, coming to California. I had no idea I was going to do this, but when Kathleen and I realized after we took the vow from this karmapa, which is called the bodhisattva vow, we needed to find some way to improve people's lives on the planet, and that's how we got involved in the Red Cross. Wow. Yeah, I feel like we all need to find our purpose, and, you know, it's just your life is so improved by that, and and that's what's going to create this, you know, this world that we need to get to as a species. I mean... Yes, we would all we're, love it. We're not, we're not, um, we're not going to do it with with uh, the type of work that we've been doing already, except for um, realizing what what has worked. I don't know. It, it, it's such a, it's such. I feel like we're we're really at a major point in time. I don't know about you. You've lived a lot longer than me. We've seen a lot well, of things happen, but in my lifetime, I'm looking at this going, Ooh, this is a ma- Yeah, this is a major point, a particularly major point because of the degree of communication that human beings have with each other now. With the media and computers, television and radio and all of that stuff, 
it is a whole different way of relating to each other than it was 100 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with electricity. <laughs> you don't have your little gizmo. We all have my little my little telephone here without knowledge of electricity. No, we we conduct a lot through that little charge. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here, David. It's been a really well, good interview. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. For that. I'm really I'm, I'm honored that you thought enough about me that you wanted to know this information. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm I'm honored that you, you know, would do it. So thank you. Thanks for saying that. Okay, and I'd like to uh, hear the outcome of what you prepare for your your project at some point. Oh, yeah, it'll be released pretty soon. This is going to be the longest one. Okay. Wonderful. It's going to be a good one, though. It's, 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 it's a gem. So thank you. Well, also to let you know that I think that what you do is a, is almost as, 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 as important as what I do. It improves people's lives and gives them something physical benefit. Yeah, I was relating firmly with, with what you were saying. Being in people's homes and making their lives better is a lot of what I consider my job. I get paid yeah. to do it, but it's my job to make your life better. And you do it very well, and you have wonderful equanimity. equanimity. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's All right, stop yeah. being Americans and gushing on each other constantly. So, But it's, it's what we need, actually. I don't want to say that. that. That's a bad thing to say. We need to uh, drop the imposter complex, be our best selves, be smart, and, you know, embrace well, it. I was at a lecture with Martin Luther King in the early 60s, and he said to us, you don't really need to go out and demonstrate. What you need to do is make every interaction what you're demonstrating about. You don't need to be in an organization, he said. You just Everything you do should be done with love and compassion. Exactly. Blew my mind that a preacher would be saying that. But anyway... That sounds that, that sounds deeply spiritual and religious and and right on to me. I'm I'm there with that one. I mean, oh. it's, think about how much easier life is when you want to bring kindness to every situation. Yes, I know, and it's uh, not only for you but for that person, and then they go along easier, and it all just feeds each other. And you can see, you can you can you don't even need to see it in other people. You can see it in yourself. Take one negative thought and let it go to the next, and then the next. Guess what? Your back hurts. Your neck hurts. You haven't doing nothing. Oh take yeah. Take one good. Take one good thought and let it go to the next. And go to the next. Guess what you're doing? You're breathing right. You're exercising. You're cooking better food. You're being nicer to your significant other. You know. I mean, come on. Not rocket science, people. Yeah, I know. I wish everyone could understand that. Yeah, I think people do. They just they forget and then they. Or they're afraid. You know, they want to have ownership over their own toys and the fact that they earned them or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. I can't explain it because I don't relate to it. But um, I, I don't think it's as prevalent as we give it credence. You know, I feel like yes. I feel like Hollywood, Hollywood, and 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 different powers that think that it's interesting 
perpetuate it, and it's deeply ingrained in the human psyche to pay attention to tragedy. So right. We're never we're never gonna get away with that. No. Away from it. You know. And people are not going to change very very rapidly, and you'll see as time goes on past past last Wednesday. People want to go back to normality. And yep. right? we don't know how much lessons will be learned. Um, it's going to take a pretty good, it's going to take a, a very significant amount of enlightenment to see what we have to do next and what's happening. And, and that, uh, we'll have to see what happens. Um, we will. We'll have people, to see what happens. Right. We'll we'll leave it there. We'll have to see what happens. Right. That's the only thing we could do. And I've lived through these kind of things in the past. You know, there was the 9/11 thing, and then before that was the McCarthy period of uh, intimidation. Yeah. And just like the president said, he mailed it when he was talking to the Congress on Wednesday. He said, "Democracy is fragile." could either be a benefit or a deficit. And you have to work with those forces are always going on. It's true. They're going on in inside of you. They're going on inside of everyone else that you come across. Inside and of it, everything. It's and all it, a ebb and a flow. Yeah. So that's really what it is. And you have to you have to constantly re review your behavior. And that's going to be the challenge for the country itself to re-review its behavior. And we'll see what we can do. But it's going to be generations before this star is uh, healed. Yeah, and, and, and who knows what that healing will look like. So, um, no, I know. so right now we are a divided nation. We are a divided nation of racists and non-racists. That's what uh, our president has created. Yeah. It's the biggest challenge now to heal that chasm. It it is. It's it's brought it to the surface, and nothing can be healed without being brought to the surface. So the opportunity is there for us to... Well, we'll see how... Hopefully. Well, we'll see how enlightened Mr. Biden can become. Yeah, not only. I mean, I, 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 when I think about some sort of, you know, healing of this, it doesn't really involve the people, the names. Like I get, like I get really annoyed because I, I, like, I feel like you could tell facts from either side. Particularly, I feel like you could tell them from, you know, progressive sides to, to, you know, conservative sides. Tell them what policies and facts exist and how they're affecting people and they do oh yeah i'm for that i'm for that but then you say whose name's on the bill it's like oh yeah no and it's like how do we get past um you know my initial reaction to you like you're saying like like how you in 72 you went through primal therapy and you your thought process was no longer to work against the universe was to work with the universe and that shift led you you know to lead later 70s and 80s you know it will you know live the 70s 80s and 90s and 
aughts and teens and all these, you know, to the best of your enlightened ability, which is what the earth needs. It needs more of it, right? Yes. Hopefully this can cause people through great suffering, you know, like that book from Edward Toll, like the way he came through and to, you know, I'm not going to say enlightenment because I feel like it's such a word, but um, where he came to a calm and a balance in his life was through intense personal suffering that had to do with him destroying himself in his own mind. And then that cracked. And I feel like our our species as a whole and, and our country as like a real microcosm of the whole, even though we are a big country, it's a microcosm of the whole, um, is, you know, in that state, the exact same state, you know, like how much more suffering can it take before it cracks and then it has to dissolve. Otherwise it can't, you know, you can't continue to go on feeling pain and suffering forever. You have to understand that you're feeling pain and suffering in the moment. And, and that is passing. Like you, like it's the thought that passes through your head and you can watch it go. And it's there, but then it went. Well, I wish a lot of people would do that and let go of those things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot more people will. And a lot more people have been and a lot more people do than we give credit to. Like I said, the tragedy is what we want to watch. You know, the 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 the, in, the 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 healing and and the real beauty and the lessons come in the silence alone. You know, even when you have a wife or a you know husband or whatever you, you know you have family, you're 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 alone. When you come to these realizations about how you're going to live your life, it's alone. You know, like you could have been in that room with the spiritual teacher, everyone doing their thing, and you could have separated yourself from it completely and not have learned one lesson that day. But you were open to it. So, boom. Right? Yeah. Yes. Well, so. I think our greatest challenge now is to make sure the young generation does not have to go through this anymore. Nope. They they wouldn't want it. No, no child would choose to have this be their future. Right. And we want to make it, try and make it so they can have a future of peace of mind. Yeah. But there's also, like, when I say that sentence, I think, wow, there's, like, at this moment in time, there's a lot of beauty. And there's a lot, like, it's just, like, there's always beauty. And you have to find the beauty first, I think. It, it sustains you. Find the negativity. You go, You find that if you find the negative negativity first, you find the next negative thought much faster. So it's just it's it's really a matter of uh, I don't know. We got deep here because I knew we would with electricity and things that have happened in my life recently, and I knew this was going to be a conversation where we would get to this point. But um, you know, this, these are the things that are important to me, honestly. I think that I think that's valid, and I think it's admirable because that's what we have to do. We have to we have to we have to think about what will make life better, and not what will make life exactly. Worse. We have to express ourselves openly, fully, and not feeling like we're quote unquote stupid because right. we're not. 
you know, everyone, everyone is bringing exactly the amount that they can at that moment. And that's their intelligence. And, and, and it's not even intelligence. It's like an internal knowing that this is where I fit. Yes. Well, anyways, that's our challenge to keep, yeah. that, keep those thoughts in this, at the surface of our mind. Exactly. It makes, it makes you get through everything easier. Likewise. All right, David, we're, I'm going to wrap it up for the third time or fifth time. We're actually going to get off this time. But thank okay. you so much for your time. Well, thank you also. I enjoyed it. Okay. These are the kinds of conversations I enjoy. Me too, very much. I'm going to enjoy listening back to it. All right? All right, my man. All right. Talk to you. Take care, David. All right. Take care. And cheers. Cheers.